Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Mikola Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Today, Karen and I thought we would come together to kind of reflect back on two and a half years of doing Brexit research. I'll be really, really honest. We did not think that two and a half years later, we would still be in this slightly unsettling situation in respect to what's going to happen to British citizens who live in the EU. And we thought that it was a good opportunity to actually... Just say that we're thinking about people and to reflect on some of the sociological points about the research. And I should also say that over the last couple of weeks, I have been in touch with a lot of the people who are taking part in the research, Karen. And what has, I wouldn't say surprised me, but the thing that stands out to me is that when people have been coming back to me, that sense of uncertainty is still coming across. And there are more and more questions about how people are going to continue living their lives the way they are, whether that's in relation to kind of registration, whether it's in relation to social security coordination. And I wanted really to just just reflect on that a bit. Mm. Yeah, it might be worth just noting that officially my funding ended my part on the project at the end of February. As you say, we had no idea that this was going to carry on so long. And it's quite hilarious looking back now that um, one of the first things that was supposed to be resolved was the issue of citizens' rights. And we actually at that moment thought, well, it'll be a short project because this is going to be one of the first things that's, that's going to be resolved. So going back then with those things in mind, what keeps coming back to me is, you know, that very first wave of interviews and observations and talking to people and things and that really overwhelming frustration and pain and agony and we ourselves were were really hit by this wave because you know a lot of people really were struggling and okay over time we have said look this isn't everybody and you know there've been times when I'm not worried and and even people who voted leave and were very optimistic about the future but this just keeps coming back it it does feel to me sometimes like a tidal wave it just comes back in and back in again with people feeling absolutely overwhelmed insecure it's as you say you know you said you've been talking to all the citizens panelists I was in Spain a couple of weeks ago and met up with some of my participants. These are real people, aren't they? They're people with lives, with stories, with families, with children, with futures. And I think that's why it's so poignant for us. Definitely. I mean, I think that the sense that I get is of people being caught in a holding pattern, essentially, that seems to be without end. And of course, we're talking at a time where we're still not clear whether we're leaving the European Union with a deal or not. Today is, I can't remember, the 4th of October and we're supposed to be leaving on the 31st of October and it's not clear what the terms are on which we will be leaving. And for those people whose real lives depend on the withdrawal agreement and on the terms laid out in that, 
this is really alarming. Mm. And I don't think that we can escape that, really. And there's still so much to sort out, even if the withdrawal agreement goes through. There is a lot to sort out. Yeah. I mean, is it worth us kind of separating this out just for a little while in terms of the policy implications and the things we can talk about? And and there have been some very good reports that are worth people going to and having a look at if they're interested. And then us maybe moving on and, and talking more about what the sociological implications are especially for our our specialist areas. I think that's really sensible, Karen. And I think that the policy brief that you're talking about is um, the one that our colleagues at Migration Policy Institute Europe have produced, which we're really happy to see come out. It's called On the Brink, Prospects for UK Nationals in the EU 27 after a no-deal Brexit. It's kind of hot off the press. And I think that really what it does is it reiterates some of the issues that were raised in the original report that we co-authored with them, which was about how member states could implement the withdrawal agreement when it came to UK nationals living in the EU 27. But it also highlights what some of the issues are specifically in relation to UK nationals living in the EU if we leave the European Union without a deal. And I think that you've drawn out key points that you wanted to kind of communicate about that. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the report was um, how it does, exactly as we've been trying to do with the project, emphasise the diversity of British people abroad. They're talking about how we can't just say British people abroad will be affected in this way. There are implications for for older people, for disabled people, for people who may or may not be registered or have the kind of paperwork that's required to prove their residence. And that is not as straightforward as it just sounds. There's issues around seasonal workers, cross-border workers, students, same-sex marriages, mixed nationality marriages, and so on and so on. They've done an admirable job of trying to pull out the implications for various of these different groups. And I think that's a really important message that we're talking about a very diverse population here and very, very complex sets of issues. So that's one really important thing. And then I think another thing that they do that's really useful is towards the end, they're talking about how things, how some of the effects might be ameliorated, given that each different country, I mean, you know more about this than I do, but each different country has its own way of of dealing with what might or might not happen and what people are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. So wherever you live, you have to learn what the regulations are where you are. And there are 27 of them. So we're not going to sit here and go through. But I think that that also that point, it's worth commenting that to date, the onus has absolutely been placed on individual British citizens living in those places to go and find out what they need to do and to resolve this issue themselves, which I think is quite interesting as an approach Mm. uh, from Mm. member states Mm. in order to do that. And that was something that came across very, very clearly in the workshop that we ran with MPI, with uh, member state officials and with representatives of the European Council, that the onus is on individuals to secure their futures and to find out the routes through which to do that. I think it was really important as well in the MPI report that they bring out some things that could help. For example, you know, it might be useful to have some kind of buffer period because, you know, if we just stop on October the 31st, you know, how is anybody going to decide at what point paperwork needs to be produced? The systems are not in place to turn everybody at that moment 
into an official resident. So there needs to be some kind of buffer period. And and they talk about there needing to be, you know, to knit, to have the systems in place and, and some flexibility and some support where getting people's paperwork sorted out is needed. Anyway, it's, it's a very good report. I think it's really useful. I think it's, you know, for people who want any sort of an easy go-to place, I think it's a good idea. But for us, I think it's really important. Our strength is in our sociological training yeah. and our sociological insights. And one of the things I really want to talk about, I know you've you've got some that you're very passionate about, but one of the things I really want to talk about is this idea that I have heard over and over again that, well, people can just go home. We've written about home. We've written about home in our book about Panama and Malaysia and in other papers that we've both written together and separately. And, you know, for sociologists, home is not just a place. It's not just where you grew up. It's not just where you live. It's not. It's all those things. It's people's past, people's futures, people's daily lives. And, you know, home is, is both material. It's where you've got a concrete home. And it's also emotional. It's where you feel it at home. It's where you live. And for me, you know, with my emphasis more recently on practice theory, it's where you spend your daily life. It's where your routines are based. It's where you, you know, where you've got your friends, where you, you know, your daily routines. It's where you know where to go to the doctors or where you, when you've got a problem, how you go and find a lawyer and, and all these things. It's all, you know, these people have in many cases, moved and settled and made new homes in that way, places where they live and have a good sense of belonging and good social networks and familiarity, regularity, all those things. It's frankly ridiculous to say you can just go home because I talk to people and they've said to me, I can go back, but that place is not home for me anymore. Well, because they've moved on, the place has moved on, mm. their friends and family, the networks that they had might have changed and shifted. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that I've been thinking about this is to think about people have made lives in those places. It's not just that they've moved to these places and they're kind of just, you know, floating around above everything else. Mm. You have to make a life in mm. a place in order to live there, you know, whether that's through work, mm. whether it's because you're in a relationship with somebody who who also lives there. So it can be quite a loaded moral term, mm. this idea of people going home mm. because, you know, the circumstances have changed. And for some people, it's just not that simple. Mm. I mean, for, well, for no people, it's that simple. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember a podcast that I did with um, Millie, who lives in Cyprus, and she was explaining to me some of the challenges that might present themselves to people who have, for example, children who have complex social and healthcare needs. And what it would mean to move a child who may not have the language, for yeah. example, yeah. of the place that you're being told to go home to. Yeah. And that was just one element yeah. of her discussion. Yeah. I really like this idea that home is, it is also part of where you grew up. I mean, I've spoken to people who've been in Spain for 30 plus years, absolutely fluent in Spanish, married to Spanish men, both the women who are coming to my mind at the moment, who say... But England is still partly my home because they remember where they grew up. They remember smells and sounds of growing up. It's part of who they are. But it, that doesn't make home. Home is not just this, 
you can't separate home out into you know one place or one time in your life you know it becomes part of who you are and and 30 years living somewhere else is now also part of who they are so it, we carry those experiences absolutely. and those memories with us yeah, and they are yeah, they, start they to don't shape just you. get shed mm, when you mm. you know um, and so of course you know 30 years in another country then also becomes part of who they are do you think that part of this is to do with the extent to which our ability to imagine what people's lives are like are very much based on very fixed understandings of the relationship between place and home and identity? Because the kind of common imaginings, the kind of popular mm, imaginings mm. are very static. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think this is a problem I've had with migration studies ever since I first started doing research on migration. I've always been very stubborn about saying I'm not a migration expert and I'm not a sociologist of migration because for me, I've been interested in migrants' lives because of their lives, because of how they live and who they are, issues around community and belonging and home and settlement and things like that. Whereas a lot of migration studies, not saying all, or let's say a lot of focus, maybe popular ideas around uh, migration, treats it as a problem or treats it as not the norm. So behind these assumptions, well, a migrant can just go home, is, yeah, exactly, this, the normativity of being sedentary. Well, I was thinking about it, not just in terms of migration studies, I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, even that idea of of being British. So what the people who are speaking to the people that we're talking to and saying to them, well, you can just go home, are saying is, you are British, therefore you should live in Britain. And it's a kind of form of nationalism, Mm. really, that just says, okay, the British belong in this box here. And that's where they should be. And what are the implications of that for other nationalities? Exactly, exactly. So what are they really saying about kind of national belonging um, becomes a quite toxic, toxic both for British people who live abroad as well as for people who do not necessarily have a British nationality Mm, and happen mm. to live in Britain. This is something else. Next topic, nationality and national identity. Oh my God, we have got so much to write about this. But Mikola, do you know my most profound quotes around national identity are non, non-existent quotes. They're things that people can't articulate, things that people can't say, silences and stumbled words. And because whenever you ask people, I mean, one of the questions I went, I started to ask people, this is research is longitudinal. We've been going back to people several times. And uh, at one point, I went back to several of my participants and I said, you know, how, how are you feeling at the moment about Britain? And the answers are so muddled because... It's not clear I mean, because people don't, I'm not either British or European or I don't fit neatly into a box and that's it. They don't quite know how to answer the question. It's really, really interesting. That's definitely something that comes across in the conversations that I've been having as well, where which seem to be a lot about their changing relationship to Britain. And I think that that kind of ambivalence that you get where, where they kind of pause and they kind of think a little bit about, you know, what Britain did mean to them and how what they thought it was and what they now think it's become from a distance, which is mediated through international news. Mm. The example the other day was somebody said to me, you know, I've heard this, I've heard on the international news that, um, you know, there's civil unrest in Britain. 
is that true? So that distance, you know, while mm. much much mm. as we think that mm. the world is interconnected, that distance is also in evidence in their ability to actually know what's going on. And mm. that then feeds mm. into their understandings of what's happening in Britain and therefore what their relationship yeah. to Britain is. Yeah. I've heard several people say, I don't want anything to do with Britain anymore. I never want to go back there. That's not a place I associate with anymore. But they say it on Twitter. They say it flippantly. But if in interviews... It's much more complicated. It's just not that straightforward. And even when you say that to me so passionately, it belies itself. <laughs> it contradicts itself because if you really didn't care about Britain, you wouldn't need to get so wound up about it. So you're saying that the emotionality mm. of those discussions mm. around Britain and Britishness in and of themselves tell you how important it is to exactly. the people that we've yeah. worked with, not to yeah. deny the fact that other forms of identification yeah. might also yeah. be important. Yeah, But there's something very interesting about national identity. And I think we need at some point to disentangle ascriptions of national identity, how people get labelled and national identities. But identities themselves are just so tangled up. And, and this takes you back to the home and belonging. National identity, to some extent, is where you grew up, but where you have rights. But it's also where who you want to associate with. But also who's allowed. Absolutely. Yeah. So who is allowed to be British? And mm. that's something we've come back to time and time again. And yeah. I think that it's a similar question that can be extended to the question of who is allowed to be European or who is considered to be European, who doesn't have to justify their citizenship as British or European. And what's become clear over the last, well, over the course of the project, but also has been reported on a few times recently in the press, is the extent to which new borders have been cropping up across Europe, where some British citizens are finding themselves questioned to a greater extent about their right to enter or leave a place. And certainly the British people of colour that Chantelle and I have been speaking to for the project also reported that actually crossing borders within Europe was never that straightforward mm. for them. They were never able to take for granted their easy passage, right. their freedom of movement in mm. the way that some other British citizens were able to. And part of that points to some of the exclusions around national identity and European identity in ways that I think are important to document yeah. because it shows us how that actually there's a long durée to that exclusion of mm -hmm. some people from questions of national identity and belonging. Mm. You found some interesting things out about people's experiences of racism, this kind of assumption that Brexit has produced a new racism. You're questioning whether it's so new. Yeah, and I think there's a danger that we decide that Brexit is the moment at which racism happened, whereas if we actually bear witness to the testimonies of British people of colour, of European people of colour, you actually see that this has a very, very long and insidious history. And it's not just the really easily identifiable examples of racial violence and harassment. This is also built into the political systems, into the institutional structures in Europe and in Britain, to the point where you can have a 
British person of colour who happens to be a member of the European Parliament questioned Mm. for his right to enter the European Parliament on his first day in office, which is what happened to Majid Majid this year. This is 2019. Wow. Do you have any other examples from the project? We have quite a few examples from the project of people being asked, particularly women of colour, in their places of work, whether they're the tea lady, uh, whether they're the cleaner. Mm. And I think that that tells you a lot about the state of race relations in Europe, in Britain at this point in time. So I think we do need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. And actually what these things point to within the broader context of the project is that, of course, what is happening to a lot of British citizens is a new experience for them. Mm. So there are British citizens who have never been questioned for their right to live in another European country. Mm-hmm. And this is part of a broader border regime mm. that has been going on for a long time. Mm. And the British people of colour that we're speaking to, they may have personal family histories of having been previously boarded. And what I mean by this is kind of being questioned for their right to be in that space, being challenged even, not just questioned for their right to be in that space, who find themselves subject to being othered in Mm. their daily lives. Mm. And if we focus too much on the fact that this is all new, so for British citizens, this is all new, we neglect the fact that it's located within this broader system Mm. where it's completely legitimate for states, it seems, to um, make judgments which are highly racialized Mm. about whether people can enter or leave a space. And it gets all tangled up, I mean, going off on a bit of a tangent, but it all gets tangled up as well around the debates around who voted for Brexit, the assumptions that it was white working class people and a protest vote against austerity by people who are suffering and the way that the response to that is an assumption that then well then we must control immigration and all the implicit racism that gets tangled up with that well i would say explicit racism that gets tangled up with that as well and i think there's a really excellent piece by tony hastrup that she wrote just before the referendum, like the day before the referendum in 2016, where she talks about how British people of colour were thinking about the referendum. Right. And for them, it always was caught up in questions of racism. And that's very much how they experienced the run-up to the referendum. And I think that that's quite... It's really important that we remember that Britain, the people of Britain, were never purely white and that the working class is multi-ethnic I mean this is a really important it's something I've become increasingly passionate about over the course of the project because that narrative is so misleading and incredibly damaging Mm. what about citizenship going again an absolute tangent but I think that's something that sociologists can um, say quite a lot about and it's been something that uh, has come out we haven't had time to develop all these things yet in in academic articles, but it's very noticeable in Spain, for example, because if you apply for Spanish citizenship, you are meant to give up, renounce your British citizenship. Now, obviously, there are people who've told me that they haven't and they've got Spanish citizenship and they've kept their British passport, but they're living 
anxious that it might get taken off them at some point, you know, and deciding which passport to use when they when they cross which border. Or others who've said to me, and here again I'm thinking of someone who has been in Spain over 30 years, who is absolutely fluent in Spanish, so challenging these assumptions about the British in Spain and who they are, married to a Spanish man with half Spanish children, absolutely fluent, absolutely integrated in the way we would normally understand that, though I do have something I could say more about that issue. And she said, but I don't want to get Spanish citizenship. I may want to come back and live in Britain one day when I'm old and, you know, if I need care and the sort of care I can get in Britain is different. And also she said something really, really profound that the older you get, the more you feel you want to go back to your roots. Now, I don't see why, just because I've had a long conversation about how people have made their home in Spain, in my case, and in other parts of Europe. I can think of a guy who's very, very well settled in Germany, for example. People who've made their home there, I don't see why that means that they shouldn't also still want to go back to Britain at some point when they're very old and and want care somewhere where they grew up. I think there are a few things there. And I think that that framing of talking about citizenship very much takes the question about what a transformation of legal status would Mm. look like. Mm. And I think that's one way into thinking about citizenship. And it certainly is quite an important one from the point of view of thinking about the work that we've been doing on the project, where you have a situation across Europe where different states have got different rules about dual nationality, for example. So as you pointed out, in Spain, it isn't as straightforward because you're supposed to only have one citizenship. Whereas in France, you can take dual nationality. And I think the fact that there's been a considerable rise in the number of people in states where dual nationality is permitted, the number of British people applying for citizenship Mm. in that state, Mm. points to a variety of things. Notable among them is the value that they place on being a citizen. Mm. And I think that there is something to be teased out about the value of being a citizen in an era where states are becoming increasingly punitive towards people who are not citizens. Mm. Mm. And I think we shouldn't dismiss that too quickly. Mm. I also think that there is a point about how, because these people never had to go through what we might understand as migration governance regimes, so they never had to do the types of things that third country nationals have to do in order to enter and stay in a state, that they have a very limited awareness of actually different routes to settlement in a country, different legal routes that might have been available. I think that there is also something about how the uncertainties that Brexit has produced for these people's lives have kind of left them looking for a a kind of a quick way. I was going to say easy, but I don't think that's the right way of putting it. A quick way to provide some security to their lives. So some of the people that I've been working with in France who have successfully applied to become French citizens say that they can cope with Brexit now. Mm. Mm. And I don't think that we should underestimate the idea that that coping is a really important way of displacing what have been incredibly high Mm. levels of anxiety Mm. in people's lives. But the flip side of all of this is that the people who are easily able to get citizenship Mm. are the people who are probably the most 
the wealthiest, mm. the people with the highest levels of cultural capital, so yeah. quite high levels of education, yeah. who probably have good language skills in the places mm. that they live and things like that. Because the cost of citizenship yeah. in most European countries is incredibly high. Mm. So I think we do need to ask questions about for whom applying for citizenship as a legal status is not possible. And what it can then do if you have citizenship. And that brings me to you know, another thing I'd noted before we came in today was that, you know, one of the things we want to do as sociologists is draw attention to the power people have, the power and resources people have and different categories of people, you know, thinking about you've, you've mentioned people of colour and class, but gender, disability, those different categorizations or classifications of people and how they those intersect and overlap with various resources and forms of capital i mean being able to negotiate your way through those kinds of regimes and decide which one might be best for you requires a phenomenal amount of human capital educational capital social capital you know being and perseverance no, well in, in in that case it could be emotional capital you know being able you know if you're suffering from mental health issues you're going to really struggle to work through those things I and mean, i'm now thinking of a guy who i know who's terminally ill how much of that even though he's a very well educated guy with probably enough financial resources he's other resources, his mental health resources are running low, you know, he, and he needs to make decisions quite quickly. Um, I mean, I think this goes back to the point that you made at the beginning around the fact that these are people's lives. Yeah. And people's lives have been ongoing mm. for the duration of Brexit, yeah. of the negotiations, of the political turbulence in Britain and its relationship with the European Union. And I think that. The thing that's really struck me is that for some people, it's bad timing. I yeah. mean, there's, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't yeah. think of a better way of putting it other than, you know, a series of factors come together all yes. at once and then Brexit piles on top of it. Yeah. And you find yourself having to deal with something that really, you know, in the case of, of the guy that you're talking about, that you really don't need. It just exacerbates mm. an already bad situation. Yeah. And we have various cases of that yeah. in the project. And those people haven't got time to wait and think. They have to make decisions before they get much iller, yeah. much older, much more disabled, much more needy or whatever. They are having to make decisions now. And there's one thing we've said all along is, you know, Brexit is happening. It, it's affecting people now. Another thing that popped in my head while we were talking about that was that one impact of this, you know, some people having much more power and resources than others to be able to negotiate their way through this. We've been monitoring Facebook debates, Twitter debates as part of the project all the way through, haven't we? And um, some of these people have been, in a way, contributing to the idea that as long as you do everything right... As long as you, I know where you're going. With why this, don't yeah. you just register? Why don't you just get citizenship? And because some people are able to do that, it's kind of masked the voices. Because again, those people also, the ones who have fewer resources, also have smaller voices. They do, and I think that the it is remarkable at this point in time that some of those voices that you're talking about still have so much faith mm. in legal systems. Mm. And I think that this is something that I think is really important to point out 
There is a really big difference between things on paper and things mm, in practice. Absolutely. And there's far too much room for interpretation mm -hmm. by municipal authorities, by member state officials, even by individual British citizens living in the EU. And that is what we are trying to be attentive to. Yeah. Those points where, you know, yes, member states are bringing in all of these new, you know, systems or contingencies, all of these, but the proof will be in the pudding, not in that piece of paper that is written down on. Yeah. How are yeah. they going to implement this and with what effects mm. for these people? And, and that's not something you can read through law because, yes, the legislation needs to be there. It's really, really important. But there's also how that then gets interpreted. Yeah. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. You haven't been able to read this through law. <laughs> you know, I think it, what, since 2005, every member has been able, including the UK, to ask citizens to register, to prove they have enough to live on, that they have enough to cover their health needs by whatever route, and the UK and others haven't. So let, let's just pause a thought for these people who are living in Europe who could easily, I mean, I can imagine somebody saying, well, if they're not registered or they haven't got their papers in order, well, it's their fault, isn't it? But this takes me to back to practice theory. Practice theory understands people and society in terms of what's gone before, in terms of what people expected, what they could do, and in the context of daily contingencies. You've got people who have been able to, to move freely throughout Europe. They weren't told, you might be able to move freely around Europe, but just bear in mind at some point in the future that might all change. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever suggested that. So they're not going through their daily lives thinking, oh, better keep my papers in order, never know. On top of that, you know, you're talking about governance regimes. The governance regimes in various countries have been incredibly variable. We can talk about France and Spain. I'll just mention Spain. You can talk about France and then others. In Spain, for example, every different council where people are, have been asked to register is different. People have been able to go and use their E111 for health and lived there permanently and been and had no problem. I can remember speaking to a couple who are, and here we're talking about people with lots of resources. We're not talking about people who are, you know, sailing close to the wind, not living on much money. And people, you mean the EHIC, not the E111. You're oh, out. sorry. Yeah, out of date. And <laughs> that was the predecessor, right? Using so. their EHIC card, E111 for old people like me. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, are you still using your e-hit card? Yeah, they don't care at our local hospital and doctors. They're still taking it. This is daily contingencies. This is people's daily lives. We don't go around thinking, oh, but the law might change. You go to register. My own daughter went to register in Spain when we were living there at the police station at that time. And they said to her, go away in a very patronising tone. Go away. We have real immigrants to deal with. The story about France is one of no registration system for the past. I mean, I've been working there since 2002 and there has, well, it was being phased out when I was first 
there. So no compulsory registration of EU citizens and nothing else contingent upon it. So in the past, for example, it might be that in order to get access to healthcare, you would have had to be registered in France through some means or the other. But they disaggregated that. And that meant that when Brexit came, British citizens in France were not registered Mm. and therefore had no way of demonstrating that they were lawfully resident. And until... I'm going to be generous and I'm going to say until last December, so to December 2018, British citizens were still being turned away from their municipal offices um, when they went to apply for their residence permits on various grounds. And anyone who knows the case of France well will know, will understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that you have a population of let's say the conservative estimate is 150,000 people who had no way of demonstrating that they were lawfully resident as European Union citizens. Mm. But I wanted also to backtrack a bit to this thing about free movement. Mm. And I think that this is one of the biggest myths that needs to be dispelled, which is free movement was never free. It was Mm. never unconditional. Mm. It Mm. is an entirely conditional right which goes, as you said, with a sense of having enough money to support yourself, which can be measured in a variety of different ways by the state in which you live, Mm. and having some comprehensive health insurance. Mm. This is not the terms on which a lot of the people that we know necessarily thought they were moving. Well, I think when you say it was never free, it was never meant to be. And this is where it goes back to what you said, the difference between law and practice, the difference between what's written and what actually happens. And we're not just talking about British people not doing what they're supposed to. We're talking about local authorities not doing what they were supposed to, including in the UK, I believe. Is it right that we didn't have requirement to register either? You know, Which has so, been one of the major issues over here as well. Yeah, That's absolutely right, Karen. And I think it's really important to remember that. But at the same time, what we see in a situation where suddenly that conditional right is enforced, mm, exactly. so those terms are yeah. enforced, you start to see the things that it actually excluded, yeah. even though those were not visible before. Right. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, you can start to see how really it privileged mm. a particular, mm. yeah. I'm going to say class, yeah. of people. And it is a very ableist policy yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that those are just two dimensions of it that are starting to to be made very visible. Europe is unequal. Mm. And I think we have to remember that. And the example that I give to illustrate this is to think about the Roma. Mm. The Roma have been deportable Mm. across Europe back to other states. Mm. In lots and lots of states, Roma who have EU citizenship have been told by various member states that they need to leave. Mm. And this shows some of the racialized exclusions of freedom of movement Mm. as well. And this goes right back to what we've written about again in the book about Panama and Malaysia and how states are very manipulative in allowing their borders to be porous when it suits them. And for some people... Yeah, and I think that's that's what I mean by when it suits them. Because, you know, so in Europe, it's been okay to allow people who haven't quite had enough money really on paper or haven't really got their papers in order. That's been okay. But now 
well, now we don't have to allow that because now now they can choose. So now they can choose. Well, obviously, they're not going to choose people who are on the borderlines in terms of income or needs. I mean, it goes back to something that you said right at the beginning when we were putting together this project. And this is going back to December 2016. We had a conversation on the phone. You've repeated this several times since, actually, Karen. <laughs> we had this conversation on the phone and you said, well, I think what's going to happen in Spain is they will use this as the opportunity to get rid of the people they don't want. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And it really does speak to those conversations about what purpose um, migration regimes mm. serve. Mm. And I think that we have to be very frank. Migration regimes serve, as colleagues like Bridget Anderson would argue, to sort mm. between deserving and undeserving. Mm. And what we're finding is that in these states where some British citizens have settled who probably don't meet the terms on which they're supposed to have met mm. in order to settle, they are now finding themselves within that system of sorting. Mm. Mm. And I think only time will tell of the extent to which it actually results in people being told to leave or mm. people being made to leave or finding they have to leave or living irregularly mm. with no access to public services. But I think that this is what we are seeing. And yes, there are long histories to this, perhaps not yet having been experienced by a lot of British people yeah. who've settled in the continent. Yeah. But this is what we're seeing. Yeah, and I think it's just worth just remembering that states don't just regulate in terms of deserving and undeserving legally, but also politically. So they're doing what is politically feasible for them. So, you know, I've long argued that we'll let in a certain amount of undocumented workers because we need them on our farms or wherever, but as long as as soon as they want to settle, then they're not the desirables, they're not the type of people we want to regulate. So then we need to tighten the borders again. This all goes back to this whole discussion that I think, I can't remember when it was, about the mobility enclosure dialectic paper that I wrote. That 2007, I think. 2007. And there are, you know, there are lots of other people who've written about this notion of mobility and enclosure, sort of opening borders, closing them, and the, the ability of states to open and close as it suits them. And that, and that, you know, to go back to the fact that governance and migration are practices. Governance is a practice. Relooking at the borders, rethinking the borders is constant, ongoing practice. It's not just a one-off, we'll have those, we won't have those. That's why they constantly have discussions about it and constantly renegotiate it. And yes, powerful people, wealthy people, people with lots and lots of resources can also negotiate those borders, but not everyone. And we're not talking about all British people here. No. And I think what if I can just kind of add in here, one of the problems with that perception of, oh, you know, law, well, this is the law, why don't they just mm. do the mm. thing that they're supposed to do, mm. is that that assumes that the practice of law is value exactly. neutral. Yes. Whereas what we know is that it's not yeah. There's all sorts of moral value that's yeah. placed on that and placed on its interpretation. Yeah. And we have to remember that. Mm. And yes, it's very starkly, in the case of migration law, racialized. Mm. But there are other intersections at play within that. We haven't talked at all today about gender, for example, which is a really significant issue in relation to migration 
that gets overlooked quite often. And I don't, I don't think we're going to have time to go into it today. But what I'm thinking of is women whose rights to be in the places that they live rely on their husbands or fathers, mm, mm, mm. Um, who are in significant caring responsibilities. There are issues always around the patriarchal arm of the law mm. in relation to uh, migration and how women who um, who basically would not be able to demonstrate that they met the terms of being somewhere exactly themselves. Yeah. yeah. So let's just bring this down to absolutely nuts and bolts. At the moment, there are people who, in the UK as well, having to prove that they've lived somewhere where they weren't required to be registered. Let's not just say they weren't registered. They weren't required to be registered. They weren't expected to be registered. And now all of a sudden they're having to prove they live there. How can you prove you live somewhere? You have to have your name on things, on a rental agreement, on a mortgage. You have to have pay slips or something. So let's just think that through. This affects women more than men in terms of it being sometimes, not saying always by any means, but there are going to be times when women are going to find this more difficult than men. Definitely. And that's not even to mention the vulnerable women Mm, who have, for whatever reason, had to keep where they're living secret from violent partners and things like that. And that's as true of British citizens who live in Europe yeah. as it may be of EU citizens living in the UK and other groups of migrants. I mean, you know, I think that might be quite a nice way to end in as much as British migrants are migrants. <laughs> there may be more privileged among them. I, I'm not sure there may be. Historically, British migrants have probably been more privileged in a general sense than some other migrants. But British people are migrants. They're diverse. There are all types of people. They're human beings who want a home. They're human beings with complex lives who are just trying to think about their future. And I think that it's time that Britain woke up to this emigrant presence that has been all too often neglected. And I wonder whether Brexit, with the transformation of rights that it brings and the lived consequences of that transformation, might be the moment to do that. And it might be the moment to really question what are the things that come together to mean that some British citizens Mm. are relatively privileged and others have struggled much more to access those privileges with outcomes for their lives. And we could go off into a complete tangent about how the British see their immigrants and relate to their immigrants and talk about their immigrants. But that's a whole new future for you, Mikla. <laughs> what fun. Thank you very much, Karen. Oh, it's been great. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mikla Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme. So please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. 
Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.